This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue, opening the minds to the public, to what takes place in reality, as opposed to what you think takes place. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Justice Tech Pros Podcast. Here's your host, Dominic Crea. Hello, listeners. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, It's been a while since I uh, put out an episode, about two weeks, I believe. Um, I haven't really had time to be on YouTube, been a little busy with certain things. We actually put in the Rule 33 response last Tuesday, so I'll probably touch on that a little bit, uh, just explain that process and where we're at. But um, yeah, I I haven't been on, but I did notice uh, today I was looking at some episodes I missed, and unfortunately as normal... You, you get all the, the drama, a lot of attacking, people abusing each other. <laughs> this YouTube's crazy, I'll tell you that much. I've never seen uh, a group of people who just focus so much on others. It's crazy. I mean, you know, just focus on your content, put it out, and that's it. But I guess um, one thing I did notice, and I made this mistake on YouTube, normally, in any, in, in any other f- format, whether you're uh, in business or you're dealing with people or even like LinkedIn, there's a lot of networking on LinkedIn, which is virtual. It's a lot different than YouTube as far as interacting. A lot of the people on YouTube, I notice they really don't, they don't want to understand things. They just want to, it seems like there's a lot of agendas and people just want to push their narrative and pump out a lot of lies and then swear by the lies and then push the lies as truths. It's an upside, it's like bizarro world. So I had to account for that and I reassessed a little bit because normally my style is I like to address things. So if somebody has a question or somebody's saying something's not true, I'll try to address it, have a dialogue about it, um, explain it. If, if they're inaccurate what they're saying, I try to bring that to light. But I started to learn that People on YouTube really don't care. They don't care. They know they're lying. They're just doing it to stir up drama, to stir up controversy, certain people. So I had to switch tactics. I'm not going to go down that road where I'm trying to have a dialogue with people. If if I pick up that the conversation is just not a legitimate one, you know, if they're just causing trouble and they're just trying to start something or start rumors, I'm just going to disengage can't even be bothered with that. It's not the. It's not what I'm here for. Uh, there's enough drama everybody has in real life. Everybody's dealing with their own problems. I don't think anybody needs additional drama on uh, on YouTube. And I think people think this is a little more important than what it is. We're talking about YouTube that has millions of channels, millions of channels, millions of people. It's global. There's channels that range from like, you know, 100 subscribers to millions of subscribers. It's, it's so vast. And, and I do believe people get lost in it. And they think like this world, I don't know, this world maybe means something on some kind of level. But I hate to tell people, it really doesn't. Um, my focus on here and things I try to use this for, I try to use YouTube as like a tool. Um, a tool to kind of 
help get the word out, try to educate people, try to enlighten defendants, enlighten the public. And I, I use several strategies to do that. What I do sometimes is I'll boost the episodes because for me, it's not about, um, I, I don't make any money on this. Nothing's monetized. So I look at it more like an investment to try to educate the public. So I'll spend money to boost certain episodes. I'll uh, promote it on different social media. Because for me, it's just about getting as many people to listen to it as possible. Uh, I want to tap into the potential jury pool. I want to tap into the public so the public's more aware of things. So I strategize based on that, based on the, the greatest amount of exposure. Um, that's really my focus, just to get as many people to hear an episode. And if they take an interest, to subscribe. And you'll be surprised for those who are, are building their channel. When you, when you advertise your episode, you get a lot of subscribers. I've had a lot of subscribers come from advertising. So even on a radio station, I did some radio station ads a while back when I first started off. I uh, got a lot of subscribers from that. I actually even started, these are just some ideas. Uh, people could feel free to implement them. Um, I, I, I started a Facebook group a while back. It was called YouTube uh sub for sub in America. And I said in, a, in the in the United States of America, because I noticed you get in a lot of these groups where they do sub for sub, you get a lot of foreign countries. And that's all great. But I just want to focus on America for my subs. The uh, obviously because of the laws, every everything is regulated. What I'm talking about has to do with the United States and what goes on with that criminal justice system. I can't really talk educated on uh, different countries because I'm not versed in that. Um, we do have a lot of members in different countries, and I value all of that. So that's great. I, I'm amazed they find it interesting. I, I enjoy that they, they like the content. We got a lot of supporters for We Push Back in different countries, so it works out great. But when I do the boosting, I just try to focus on the demographic uh, closest uh, to those who could relate to the material. So I, I, I boost it. But the Facebook group I started, it was called um, Sub for Sub. I think USA, I forgot what I named it. But what I did was I'd have a lot of people in there who had channels and we'd all sub to each other. And it was a good, it, it was another good um, avenue to grow your channel. You're meeting people, you're helping each other, everybody's growing each other's channel, and you're gaining new listeners. You're gaining people who didn't know about your material. I, I just didn't have the time to keep up with it and I wasn't going to assign that to anybody in my office. I think they would strangle me if I keep assigning them this stuff that doesn't really have to do with the with the company. So um, I stopped running the group, but it is a good, it is a good um, avenue. I, I got a few hundred subs that way as well. It was, it was a good avenue back then. So there's a lot of things you could do. I like doing the boosting, like I spoke about, because they pay, they play your, your, I think like a minute or 30 seconds of your episode um, before a YouTube video. You know, when you go to somebody who's monetized and you see like the commercials played, your episode will be played. So it's a good, another good way. And use Instagram, uh, Twitter, use all the hashtags just to get the momentum going, just to build the channel. There's a lot of things. You got to spend a few dollars sometimes, but that's the cost of it. And I guess it all depends on what your goals are. You know, if your goals are to make money, you have to have a better handle on that. You want to make sure the cost analysis versus the income analysis makes sense. When you're not too concerned about making money and you're just allocating a certain budget, you have a little more freedom in what makes sense. For me, it's very simple. My goal is just to appeal to as many people as I can. And that's going to be the goal for We Pushback.
It's going to be just to get the word out there, and I'll do a lot of the same things when the time comes. I'll boost a lot of the episodes. I'll um, I'll uh, do some advertising. I, I had my office contact a podcast um, award ceremony. They do podcast awards, and I, um, I'm trying to get the information on being a sponsor for that award ceremony. I thought that would be pretty cool. Provided it isn't anything crazy. I'm not going to spend thousands. You know, it's a little nuts. But provided it's not anything crazy, I'd like to see what it is uh, to be a sponsor. I think that'd be pretty cool. You see the We Push Back channel, the We Push Back website on the podcast awards. I think that'd be pretty cool. So I'm going to look into that, see if it makes sense financially. It may not. It may be somebody's somebody's sponsorships on these bigger programs. I know from business side, uh, they could run you a few dollars. In the past, I sponsored a few networking groups. Um, this one that I sponsor, it's a, it's a golf networking group, which a friend of mine runs it. And you know, it's a few dollars. They cost you a few dollars. So I, I don't know. I got to see what that is and if it makes sense, but those are just some of the ideas I wanted to share with you guys. These shirts, the shirts should be done in about another 10 days. And then I'm going to, I think the best way of handling it, I'm going to give away to some of the members, some shirts, I'm going to keep some, and then whatever I have left. I'm going to list, may probably have like 80 left. And the first 80 people to respond with their size will get a shirt. I got a bunch of different sizes to try to accommodate. Um, I got from medium up to 4XL. And I'll put how many of each I have. And then I, I figure I'll make a post about it. It'll be easy to track. Everybody could respond in the post who wants a shirt with their size. And then I'll give it to my office to contact them and uh, coordinate delivery and all that stuff and, and I know um, we push back a lot of people are against it and again what makes me laugh is I don't know if, if people thought I'd be surprised by that if anything I'm surprised that it's not more intense than it is I, I knew putting together something that was going against uh, informants and the lies they tell you'd get a lot of pushback because you're, you're upsetting a lot of people. You're upsetting the informants, obviously. They don't want people calling them out. You're upsetting their fanboys and fangirls. You're upsetting whoever's friends with them. You're upsetting their family, the government, the state, whoever works with them, their handlers. So there's a lot of adversity out there. So I expected all of that. Um, that's, just, that's just the nature of the beast. But I'll tell you one thing. When you get those who repeatedly make remarks, repeatedly state things, these content creators on their podcasts, they want to do whole episodes about it, they want to talk about how they think things should be run, well, they should start their own thing then and run it. But I'm quiet for now. I like to, I like to sit back sometimes and assess before I respond to things and really put my ducks in a row. And that's really where I'm at now with certain things. I, I don't want to, again, as I said earlier, I'm not going to go down where I'm going tit for tat. But if I see things are just getting too much and I feel I got to respond, well, that's what I'm going to do. So a lot of times I'll sit back. I'll see how things play out. I'll see how far people want to take something. And then if they force my hand to do something out of character, as far as addressing a content creator or making a show about a content creator and showing things that I think should be shown. If that's what happens, that's what winds up happening. Sometimes 
I may not make the right choice because I'm heated or I'm annoyed, and, and that's life. That's how it goes. But what I do try to do is take a step back beforehand and get, the old saying, right? You give people enough rope to hang themselves. So that that's how it plays out sometimes. You keep giving somebody rope, and if they choose to hang themselves with it, well, that's how it goes. So that's my style. I know people like to come out. Uh, they monitor every show, every comment made by every single person, not even content creators, every single random person, they're monitoring con comments, they're seeing who's going on. I mean, God bless. I don't know who has the time for that, but God bless. I wish I had that kind of time to see who's commenting what, to see who's talking about what. I wish I had that kind of time. I just try to enjoy shows that appeal to me and shows where I don't have to be concerned about uh, writing in the chat and then all of a sudden an informant's in the chat. That's just not for me. I'm not bashing anybody who allows that. It's just not for me. I won't be comfortable with having my name and an informant's name in a chat together. Uh, it's just Again, it's just not for me. Right or wrong, I, I don't see it. I don't any. I don't ask anybody to, to agree with that or understand where I'm coming from, but that's just where I come from. So I try to pick shows where I don't have to be concerned with that. And the We Push Back members, I don't have to be concerned with that. I don't got to worry about an MRE show. I don't got to worry about it on King Shade show. I can interact if I choose. So that that's how I, I approach things. And um, lately, I haven't really seen much of anything. I got to catch up. I know um, a lot of people did a lot of shows, so I'd like to catch up when I have some time. I enjoy that. I enjoy the content everybody's putting out. Um... And uh, that's it on that end. You know, we're going to keep moving forward. We, we have a good core. Um, as always, you got to remember, I said this from day one, people are going to leave. People are going to join. That's how it goes. Sometimes people decide, ah, this isn't for me. Or sometimes they decide, hey, this is for me. Can I join? So you got you to gotta let it play out. This started um, in December. We're in February now. So little by little, things will alter and change. Those who still align with it, awesome. Those who don't, equally as awesome. Everybody can only do what they're comfortable on here and what they believe in and what feels right. And that's what I focus on. I try to focus on what feels right to me, feels right to my beliefs, things that I'm comfortable with, people I'm comfortable associating with, people I'm not comfortable associating with, things like that. That's how I navigate this space. This is a hobby. This is something I'm just trying to do for the public. To get awareness. That's really it. Just to bring awareness, bring another side of the narrative. So family members have a voice. Family members could say, hey, that's not true. I want a voice. Uh, one thing I noticed, I've been dealing with some family members, some friends. I've even been dealing with a, a business partner of one of the informants. An ex-business partner. And they have a lot to say, but people get a little hesitant. They see, they see what goes on on YouTube and they don't want to be part of that. And I don't blame them. So I've been given different options. I, I told them they could type something up and I'll read it. So there's several things in, in the works. I reached out to a defense attorney about an informant. Uh, we've been going back and forth. I'm trying to get some trial transcripts. I want to cover the trial. I want to cover um, the motions, things like that. So there's a few projects in the works. Uh, I'm not a big interviewer. I had a few people email me if they could come on the show uh, that's not really what I do. If it's a lawyer or I did, you know, I try to pick where the public can learn. So in other words, I had like the experts on it. If you didn't listen to those episodes, you got to listen to those because 
the experts, um, I've, I think I did two two episodes on with experts. It was cell site experts and forensic experts. And it's really important to hear that uh, because people don't understand how important an expert's role is in a trial. And unfortunately, I see... I see it play out sometimes where the defense doesn't present an opposing expert, and it's a big mistake. There's always experts that you could call. There's always, it's almost like on here, right? You get different sides to stories. There's always a different expert's analysis. So you want to look into that. You want to investigate that. You want to make sure that the government's expert is not making mistakes or saying things that aren't 100% accurate because jurors just tend to put a lot of credibility in an expert, and rightfully so, I understand it. So it's very important you want to get opposing experts uh, on the case. And and if you go through my episodes, you'll see you'll see the um, the ones I I had done where I had two gentlemen on who are forensic experts, audio, video experts, computer experts. Uh, cell site was a big one. We were talking about how the cell site technology can be tricky, and it's not as accurate as many people think. So. I recommend listening to that. Um, for those new to the channel, I just recommend going to, through the different episodes, see what appeals to you. You could learn a lot, uh, gain some information. Always welcome to ask, answer, ask questions, things like that. One thing I want to mention, there was a gentleman named Jeff Nadu. He did an episode... Uh, I guess he did an episode on uh, my father. And I just wanted to mention that he actually emailed me, which I thought was a, a, a classy move, and he showed uh, courtesy. He emailed me that if there was, I guess, anything I wanted to add or talk about. I explained to him that's not my style. Uh, if it was up to me, none of these none of these channels would exist, to be honest. I'm not into that whole uh, mob history and talking about people. It's just not my thing. But I give him credit because the gentleman actually asked me. He gave me the courtesy. And I never really get that. People just write what they want. You go you go on the internet between these forums. You got the forum fools who spend their, spend their whole life in these forums talking about people. You get these channels where they just uh, put up about people's business. And so that's really not my thing. I explained to him, you know, basically do whatever you want to do. I have no input. I, I, did, um, I did give him two recommendations. I just let him know that the uh, that nonsense nickname uh, never existed. It's not true. And I also, um, I think the other, I don't remember the other thing. It was something something simplistic like that. But yeah, I don't get into what's accurate, what's not. I really don't care. There's so much fake stuff out there anyway that's not accurate. What am I going to do? Track down every one of these shows and tell them this is wrong, that's wrong. Let them put what they want. I really, That's not my focus. They're doing their thing. But I just wanted to say I appreciate the guy reaching out. I thought that was a, uh, a, a quality move and a professional move just to give me the opportunity if I wanted it. Again, it's not my thing. I don't really get involved in that. Let people say what they want. Uh, if it's something that I feel is so important where I have to give the truth to it, then I'll jump in. But other than that, I, I don't get involved in that. Whatever people are going to do, they're going to do, right? I, that's just how it goes. That's just how it goes. But if it was up to me, <laughs> I don't like any of those channels. And a lot of family members similar to me 
that I talk with and a lot of my friends, they're on the same page with that. It's just a different, different world, different way of looking at things, but teach their own, right? Everybody's entitled to put out what they want, do the material they want. And that, that was a big part of why I wanted to do my channel. So I had a voice as well and I could say certain things. Once again, just inserting another side to things. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on was the update on a Rule 33 submission. That's for the case of Stephen Crea, Matthew Madonna, Christopher Londonio, and Terrence Caldwell. Just to give an update to those following the case, as of last Tuesday, what happened was we put in our initial filing for the Rule 33, and that's basically asking the current sitting judge, Judge Seibel, the, um, to to issue a new trial based on newly discovered evidence, which would have impacted the trial had we had it during trial. So we made that submission. The government then responded the way the process works is you put it in. The government then has an opportunity to respond. The judge will give them 30 days, 45 days, 60 days normally. I believe in this case it was 45 days. And the prosecution then responded. And then the defense has the final rebuttal. So we go by, we take the prosecution's response where the prosecution will always, in their response, they look to knock out the defendant's response, right? They look to pick it apart and say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't issue a new trial because of X, Y, and Z. And then the defense has a rebuttal where they say, well, no, actually, uh, the prosecution's wrong and here's why. And then the defense argues. The judge then takes those three items. They take the initial submission. Uh, they take the prosecution's response they take the defendant's rebuttal and then they they make a determination sometimes they, they may call a hearing in this case they may call a hearing they may want to hear actual arguments play out and there's no time frame on it it's up to the judge however the judge is somewhat on the clock because when you submit a rule 33 before an appeal you have to notify the appellate division that you're working on a rule 33 and they need to pause or toll the the appeal. So they'll put it, you have to get approval if it's gonna be paused or not. We got the approval, it was paused. But what you do have to do is you have to update uh, the uh, appellate. There's a contact within the uh, appellate court that you're assigned. They're like the mediator, they go back and forth with the appellate judge, they schedule everything. So you have to contact them and give them an update of where you're at so they could schedule everything. So in this case, we have to contact them, I believe it's once a month, and just give them a heads up if uh, the judge is still weighing the issues and has not issued, has not given a judgment yet, or she has and we're done with that. It all depends. You have to keep the appellate court updated. So that's somewhat of a clock. The judge is aware that they have to be in sync with the appellate board and they have to notify the appellate board of where they're at in the process. So every month they'll get a status update. Um, so even though there's no time frame, they are under a clock because they know the appellate board is waiting on their behalf. And what happens is if, if you lose at this level, if we lose at the um, district court level and she knocks it down, then you're able to use that Rule 33 material and attach it to your appeal to obviously submit a more powerful, more impactful appeal. Now our appeal is already very, very strong, very ironclad. I, I, I've been confident in the appeal from day one. Um, 
However, the newly discovered evidence was very important, so we had to get it on record as well and potentially use it as part of the appeal if we don't win uh, a new trial on the district level. So that, that's how that works, and then you're able to use all that information. Once it's on the record, you can now incorporate the Rule 33 material into your appeal. Uh, again, we already had a very strong one. There was a lot of constitutional errors, grand jury errors, informant statement errors, uh, juror errors, some of the things the jurors said during, there's a lot of legitimate constitutional flaws that are cause for concern and stripped for defendants of having the right to a fair trial. So we're very confident on the appellate level. On the Rule 33 level, I don't know. Me personally, uh, I'm a little jaded. I hope I'm wrong. I, I, I just, a lot of the rulings unfortunately didn't go in our favor at this level. So I don't know. For me, I'm, I'm taking the approach, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Uh, it's more, for me, a formality to allow us to use it as part of the appeal. So that that's where my focus is on that. And with that said, I just want to share, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's pretty extensive, but this was our response and it was filed on the 25th. And this, uh, basically the way it's laid out, there's the docket number up top if anybody wanted to pull it for themselves. It's on PACER. And it lists all the attorneys for all the different defendants. Um, you outline, you give a, a table of contents. This just outlines exactly what you're going to be covering. You don't really go into the initial arguments again because you already addressed those on the submission. So the response is purely to focus on the government's submission and look to address those arguments and look to give the side of the defendants. And this gives you a little outline. This reply memorandum of laws respectfully submitted on behalf of defendants Matthew Madonna, Stephen Crea, uh, senior, which is actually an error. It should be Stephen L. Crea. He's not, he's not a senior. And my brother's not a junior. Two different middle names. But Christopher Londonio, Terrence Caldwell, in, the, uh, in response to the government's opposition, and we cite their opposition for the new trial. Uh, this gives, again, a little bit of an outline. Defendant's initial memo of law presented a voluminous catalog of newly discovered evidence and described its relevance and materiality. Thus, this reply need not repeat that extensive presentation. So we're basically just saying we're not going to repeat this whole thing. We already did it in our initial submission, and this is just going to serve as a response. Rather, as detailed below, it will address certain arguments made by the government in its opposition and illustrate by multiple examples that the government's opposition fails for a number of reasons. So what we're doing is we're taking the government's oppositional memo and we're explaining to the judge why we believe it fails on all of the points and the merit that they tried to give it. Um, we outline each point. Number one, the government's repeated speculation and surmise powerfully reinforced the need for an evidentiary hearing to resolve many of disputed issues of fact in this motion. So what we're saying here is that the government, a lot of their arguments is specu speculation and assumptions. So we feel there needs to be an evidentiary hearing to, to um, analyze those things and understand their arguments and understand it, it, this isn't a matter of speculating. We need facts and we need documents to support what they're claiming. 
Uh, and here's an example. Prosecution, uh, prosecutors' unsworn ideations and mind reading are not a substitute for the requisite accuracy obtained through the testimony of witnesses and law enforcement personnel directly involved in the events at issue. So we're saying we need a sworn affidavit um, to these things. We need, we need solid documents, not just what the prosecutor thinks or what they're surmising or what their interpretation of events are. Uh, it, it's got to be supported by documentation, uh, channel of command, things like that. Uh, the, the government attempts futilely to deny the importance of witnesses and theories. It explicit, explicitly presented to the jury as decisive, credible, and viable, and viable basis for conviction. What we're saying here is in the government's reply, they're almost trying to have it both ways. In one breath, they're trying to say a lot of the things we pointed out wasn't that important, um, it wasn't that relevant, but then during trial, uh, they were pounding home the point how important these witnesses were and how important their theories were. So now you can't have it both ways. You can't tell the juror that they're that vital to the trial. And then when we raise issues and we question the informants and we find things that they didn't disclose, you can't then say, well, they're not that important and relevant to trial. You can't have it both ways. So that's what we're outlining here and explaining to the, to the judge. Number three, the government's conclusory and convoluted attempts to create inculpatory or neutral rationales for the newly discovered and undisclosed evidence and the process through which such exculpatory was suppressed are irrelevant and demonstrate that the government is essentially incapable of recognizing or acknowledging Brady material and or a consequence recording and or disclosing it in timely and constitutional adequate fashion. Here we're, we're saying that the government is trying to minimize the issue that they didn't meet their Brady obligation. They're just trying to minimize it. When we reference Brady material, uh, that, that's the, uh, the law with the Brady obligation. It, it's basically, it's telling the prosecutor they have to disclose material, anything, any evidence, exculpatory evidence that the government may have, they have to disclose that to the defendant. Uh, they call it Brady because it was named after uh, the case Brady versus Maryland. Um, so that, that's what that is, is, is touching on. The government not disclosing Brady in a reasonable amount of time. For example, the Evangelista calls, his jail calls, we got a year after trial ended. So, and they were very important calls, which we showed in our, in our submission. And in the government's response, they were trying to downplay the importance of that. And we're just trying to say, well, you could downplay it all you want, but that's the law. You have a Brady obligation and it wasn't met. And that's a, that's a problem. One of the other issues we had, um, number five, instead of confronting the newly discovered and undisclosed evidence and its profound implications for the result of, results at trial, the government either ignores or mischaracterizes it or creates a series of straw men seeking to distort or misstate defendant's position and the clear and overriding importance of the evidence. And then it goes on to point six. So here we're just saying that the government's really not addressing what, we're, what we argued about, the newly discovered evidence and its, and its huge impact and how it impacted trial. They're not really, they never addressed that, addressed that in their response. They glossed over it and again tried to minimalize it. 
So we're, we're, we're talking about that aspect in uh, point number five. So again, this goes on. It lists every point. You want to attack each argument or each, um, each item that the prosecution tried to, tried to discredit. So that you want to lay that out for the judge prior so the judge understands the different points you're going to be honing in on. Uh, and then we just lay, lay out the different points in order to structure this reply as efficiently as possible and to digest a significant volume of material in coherent fashion, albeit on occasion requiring extensive excerpts from the record. It will be divided first into discussions of two legal issues, how the government's opposition amplifies the need for an evidentiary hearing, should the motion not be sufficient on its face, and why the Bureau of Prisons and MDC, which is the Metropolitan Detention Center, were, for Brady disclosure purposes, part of the prosecution team under the particular circumstances of this case. What we're trying to explain here is the MDC housed the jail calls, and they had a process for those jail calls. Now, we called an expert during trial from uh, the Bureau of Prison to talk about uh, how they house the, the jail calls, how long they keep them. And during his testimony, he stated that the BOP only keeps the calls for six months. Yet, they turned over the Evangelista calls over a year after, saying, oh, they just got them. So there's a little bit of a problem there. Either their expert was wrong or somebody's not in the loop, something's going on, right? Sounds a little off. So we want a hearing based on that. We need to know, well, what's the truth? Is it the Bureau of Pure Prisons expert that says after six months the calls are gone? And if that's true, then how'd you get the calls? And if it's not true, then that's a problem with the trial again because the expert testified that those that's how things work towards the jury. So now we have to question the rest of his testimony, right? Falsus in uno, falsus in omnibus. You lie to me once, how am I going to trust the other lies, basically? Well, you're inaccurate once you tell me something false once. How am I going to trust anything else? So th th that's a, a, another sticking point of this submission. And we would want an evidentiary hearing on that. We go into the points. The government's opposition establishes the need for an evidentiary hearing to the extent defendant's motion does not mandate a new trial on its face as a matter of law. So here we're saying, okay, so if we don't mandate a new trial, at the very least, we should get an evidentiary hearing to understand a lot of these things that took place. Like, how did we get the phone call a year later if the expert is saying after six months they get rid of it? So there's a lot of questions, and that's why we're giving two options. You give us an evidentiary hearing, or you just rule on a new trial. But we're, th these are the arguments we're trying to make for this submission. The other point I just wanted to highlight is what I was talking about earlier regarding the phone calls. Uh, we, we go on to say additional fact-finding is required in part because it has been established that the prison recordings were possessed by a member of the prosecution team prior to Mr. Evangelista's tri testimony at trial. Indeed, the trial record contradicts material aspects of the government's unsworn narrative regarding how the recordings were discovered. Ten months after trial and 11 months after Mr. Evangelista testified, in fact, the BOP special investigation agent, Timothy Greer, testified at trial that the prison calls cannot be retrieved more than six months after they are made. And this is uh, what took place at trial. The question was asked, okay, so we could only retrieve the video for two weeks, but we could retrieve the calls for 90 days, and we could retrieve the emails forever, correct? Phone calls you could retrieve for six months. 
So we need to understand how is that possible. Thus the government understanding that MDC mistakenly prepared the disc shortly after receiving the August 19th subpoena cannot be accurate because the withheld records were made during the summer of 2017, nearly two years before the issuance of the August 2019 subpoena, unless of course there had been a prior request to preserve those specific recordings. And uh, we go on to say, while the government concedes it sought Mr. Evangelista's call list and telephone log from July, June 1st, 2017 until August 1st, 2017, uh, the government's opposition does not explain why, does not explain why they call themselves, the call themselves were not of interest to the government, particularly since the government had already prepared Mr. Evangelista's testify. Mr. Evangelista to testify that Mr. Londonio used Mr. Evangelista's phone account and it had admittedly obtained records by at least August 21st, 2019, establishing that Lantonio had in fact, Londonio had in fact used Mr. Evangelista's account to make at least one phone call from MDC. The, prosecution, the prosecutors had also received a written request from the defense seeking the production of the withhold reco withheld recordings before Mr. Evangelista testified. Now, in this part, we're just arguing uh, that the BOP were under, uh, the, they, they were part of the prosecution's team because the prosecutor, prosecution's trying to say that they weren't part of their team. However, case law, which we cite here, explains that once they're used in that, in that capacity, they are part of the team. So that's uh, one of the items of, for contention that we need the judge to offer insight on and address. And the whole argument we made prior, it goes into case law and we're outlining how that the uh, BOP is part of the prosecution team and we explain that here. Thus the case law overwhelmingly supports attrib attributing the conduct of the BOP in this case to the prosecution. Here, the MDC was undeniably part of the team in more, in more ways even than in Wilson. Wilson was one of the case laws that we cited above. In addition, the Department of Justice, the parent agency of both the Bureau of Prisons and the USMS, um, with the latter, the technical custodian of persons detained at MDC, also exercises considerable control over MDC. So we're, ba we're, we're just outlining how they are part of the team because they're controlled by those different departments. So when the prosecutor tried making the argument that uh, the BOP is not part of the team, we're using case law in previous cases to show that that's an error. They, they are considered part of the team. Hence why we need a grasp of the chain of events that took place, whereas this subpoena was issued for those phone calls and then we received those phone calls. Here we just go on to talk about how um, those calls were very material and it could have resulted in a different re uh, result at trial if we had them as we were supposed to have them prior to trial so we could prepare, investigate, and cross-examine on those calls. Uh, this just goes on to talk about the arguments, citing case law. What you want to do in all of these, a lot of it's about case law. You want to guide the judge to show them where similar circumstances took place and how prior judge judges may have ruled on those situations to give them uh, sort of a map of history on how these things were handled in the past and how the courts ruled in the past and that gives the judge a little bit of guidance. 
we then go on to just talk about how um, there was inaccuracies at trial where the prosecution tried to let the jury know that the informant evangelista was not using drugs, and they outlined that. And here is the um, cross-examination. The court, uh, this is the uh, court transcript, I'm sorry. Uh, the court, why isn't that right? This is uh, at trial based on its representations. The government successfully precluded the defense from impeaching Mr. Evangelista on this specific ground on the premise that all of his drug use predated 2016. So this is the prosecution talking with the court, and the court's asking why isn't that right? And the prosecution, Ms. Rothman, said his heroin use during 2016, 15, 14, 13 isn't relevant. The question is his ability to perceive during the summer. Mr. Maringolo, who is Londonio's attorney, said, Judge, in addition to that, they put the cooperation agreement I wasn't allowed to cross on. They were going to redirect. They didn't redact it. Am I now allowed to cross? He did PCP, which is in the cooperation agreement that's unredacted. So the lawyer's asking if he could, he's asking the judge, could he cross-examine on uh, the PCP usage that Evangelista did, which was noted in his cooperation agreement. The court is saying if he did it during the time frame he was dealing with your client, then yes. The prosecution jumps in, he did not, Your Honor. Okay, so that's what they say. The prescription on cross-examination was enhanced by the prosecutor who informed the court that she had instructed the witness that the court would not allow cross-examination into his prior drug use. Nor is there any legitimate doubt that Mr. Evangelista was still using drugs during the summer of 2017. Now remember, uh, the government told the court, the judge, that he wasn't using drugs. Um, other, prison phone, uh, other prison phone calls recording during that period demonstrate that Mr. Evangelista was still selling drugs at MDC and attempted to extort inmates to pay for those drugs. Now, don't you think that'd be important for the defense to be aware of so they could cross-examine this witness and talk about how he was dealing drugs while he was an informant? Or, uh, oh, I'm sorry, during the summer of 2017 when the uh, prosecution said he wasn't involved in drugs during that time period, I think that's a relevant fact that the defense should have been able to talk about and discuss and bring to the jurors' attention. Um, that, of course, provided Mr. Evangelista easy access to drugs in MDC. That abuse was, according to the new post-trial revelations made by Evangelista's lawyer, at its worst, an enormous addiction resulting in Mr. Evangelista's daily heroin, heroin consumption of 24 bags, and we cite where that was uh, stated, uh, United States First Evangelista. Should there be any question in that regard, the solution is an evidentiary hearing and not to permit the government to continue to present a false portrayal of Mr. Evangelista that is conveyed to the court and the jury. So we're, we're saying that the prosecution keeps saying things that are false and we need a hearing so the judge could give an answer on that. Well, which is it? They need to decide these things where they're saying he didn't do drugs, we're showing he did do drugs. We need clarification on that. And again, we go through each argument and um, we analyze each argument. We responded to each argument that the prosecution tried making as it related to each informant and the newly discovered evidence that was attached to that individual. Uh, here we're talking about John Panisi, the government and or Mr. Panisi's failure to disclose his various other crimes 
was material to the outcome of trial. So we, a lot of things came to light with the Rule 33 based on podcasts and different sources where the informants told things that we weren't aware of prior to trial and they disclosed information that we had no knowledge about. Uh, and this talks about that a little bit. While the government appears to acknowledge Mr. Panisi's perjury at trial and claiming he disclosed to the government all his prior criminal conduct, so the government appears to acknowledge in their brief uh, that Panisi committed perjury. The government nevertheless argues that disclosure of those crimes would be cumulative and not material. So they're trying to split hairs and say, although he lied, it wasn't a cumulative impact. It was, it was not material. Uh, however, at the time, the government admits that members of the prosecution team simply failed to record certain information imparted by Mr. Panisi. And we give where they said that. So they're, they're admitting that members of the team didn't record information. Now, you have to record these things. If they're saying they were told and there's no record of it, well, that's a problem. In either event, whether suppressed or newly discovered, the evidence is material independently and or in combination. Indeed, the government cannot argue simultaneously that it did not possess the information from Mr. Panisi, while at the same time conceding the agent's repeated failure to memorialize Panisi's account of his undisclosed criminal acts discussed in the podcast. And we cite the exhibits. So again, they can't have it both ways. They, 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 can't, uh, they can't say that the, um, that the agents failed to memorialize it and then say, well, it's not really that important. You can't have it both ways. There's systems in place. There's things that have to be followed. And when they're not followed, that's a problem in the eyes of the law. Uh, the government attempts to excuse its failure to provide Brady material, maintaining that the information was a granule, granular or not of investigative value. I had a problem with that word granular, huh? Was not recorded. Neither constitutes an exception to the government's Brady obligation even if admission to the facts comp comprising criminal offenses could be considered granule. Granular. <laughs> granular. All right. Word of the day for me. Granular. For instance, the government characterizes as granular the details of Mr. Panisi's many illegal use of firearms and other crimes. So you see the, the constant theme here? They're just trying to minimize. They're trying to say, oh, this don't mean much, this don't mean much, this don't... So they're trying to say all these things that we should have had for a trial don't mean much. But I ask you this. Imagine the, the defense had a bunch of information that we didn't turn over. Do you think they would then say, oh, it doesn't mean much? No, that'd be a big problem. <laughs> so it's just funny when you see them try to minimize things that are very important to trial and for somebody getting a fair trial, and they try to minimize it as if it had no bearing. How do they know it had no bearing? How do they know what the juror's thinking? How do they know what the juror would have, how much weight the juror would have gave these things? You don't know that. You got to have all the items. You got to have all the facts to put on a case. You can't be stripped of information and then afterwards told, oh, well, we didn't give you that, but it's no big deal. It's not the way the system works. Or I should say it's not how the system is supposed to work. It's not how it's supposed to work. Uh, here we go on to talk about a, a scam that he, that uh, Mr. Panisi was involved with, with Range Rover, and there was um, some threats of violence. All things we weren't aware of. It's all just things that we didn't uh, have the information on, we couldn't cross-examine on, and again, it limited the four defendants and it stripped them of the right to due process, to a fair trial. 
And here we have, um, we cite the trial transcript, the litany of Mr. Panisi's non-disclosed criminal conduct, including that which law enforcement agents made their own self-serving determinations as to what constituted exculpatory information is in stark current contrast to his testimony at trial. So at trial, he was asked, you admitted to the government all of your crimes, right? He said yes. In your proffer sessions, many of them, very early on, correct? Yes. So Panisi saying he admitted to all his crimes and he told them about them, but yet we weren't aware of a lot of these crimes that came to light during his podcast tour of fame. You know, we weren't aware of a lot of these things and you can't, again, you can't have it both ways. Uh, that's really the bottom line. You just cannot have it both ways. And that's what we're trying to uh, bring to light and have the, the judge decide upon. And again, we, now we address the third informant involved in the Rule 33, Frank Pesqua III. And our point five is the newly discovered and or dis undisclosed evidence with respect to Frank Pesqua III was material and or would have produced a different result at trial. So we're harping on the point yet again that the information that came to light was material and we needed it to get a fair result at trial. The government concedes that Frank Pesqua III's podcast statement that he and his father saw Meldish minutes before the murder constitutes newly discovered evidence. However, the government fails to acknowledge how that disclosure differs materially from the government's earlier representation regarding Mr. Pesqua's account and its impact on Mr. Pesqua's value as a defense witness. So really, the, the bottom line is, folks, it's a matter of the prosecution trying to minimize these things and say they didn't matter, and the defense is saying, well, we beg to differ. They matter a lot. The jury need to be made aware of these things. And this is the game. This is how it goes. No, pro Listen, no prosecution team is going to say, oh, you got us. You guys are right. They're going to fight tooth and nail. So this is all expected. This is how the process works. They're going to put in their side. You got to put in your side and you got to hope that your argument is stronger and the, and the judge sees validity in your argument. And that's how these things work. But it's just amazing how I understand this is what they have to do, but you figure they would realize, all right, yeah, this is a lot of information. The way I look at it is if, if a prosecutor is truly about getting somebody for the charges, these type of things should mean something to them. You would think they wouldn't want to put the wrong person away. Now, I know a lot of them have that mentality that a lot of the public has. Well, if they're not guilty of this, they're guilty of something, so it doesn't matter. They should be in jail anyway. Okay, but that's not how uh, the process is supposed to work. That's not what the criminal justice system is about. Uh, it's about making sure that the facts of the case support the evidence and support the charges. And unfortunately, that's a huge obstacle even in society. Think about it in all these rooms, right? All these like forums I told you about, the comments and YouTube videos. That's all you see, right? People saying, oh, well, they're bad. They're not innocent. They're not saints. They're not angels. Well, they're, they're too ignorant or not as intelligent as they think they are to realize that is not the argument. The argument is not saying who's a saint, who's a this, that. That's not what it's about. It's making sure they got a fair trial, making sure the evidence of the case and the facts of the case warrant the charges. That's how the criminal justice system works. doesn't matter if you think somebody's guilty, you don't like somebody, you're biased against somebody. All of that is supposed to be left at the door in, this, in the courtroom, right? That's why Lady Justice is supposed to be blind, even though we know she's not. But that's how it's supposed to work. So all of the people, all, all, all those who believe, well, they're not saints, they should be in jail anyway, 
that's your, your prerogative. You're entitled to believe that. But I hope you never sit on a jury because you're not equipped and you're not a responsible juror and you don't understand the process. So hopefully you just stay in the peanut gallery with your remarks and, and you, you really don't deserve the right to judge anybody's life based on being a juror member because you're not going to you're not going to weigh the facts you're not going to fulfill your duty properly you're going to go in with bias and that's not that's the problem in society that's why so many wrongful convictions that's why so many people are in jail that should not be in jail that are innocent because you have jurors who don't do their job they 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 go in there and they find someone guilty based on on a bias they may have or thinking somebody's not a good person they don't actually do their job they don't weigh the evidence. They don't take the time. And that's that's the major problem. That's why there's uh, organizations like the Innocence Project and all these big organizations helping exonerate innocent people because of all of these errors that take place. This is a real problem. And that's one of the main reasons why I started the podcast, to help push and help shine the light on the truth that a lot of these organizations are trying to do on a grand scale. I mean, they're doing a phenomenal job. I do it on a small scale. That's just what I'm, what I have at my, um, at my fingertips to to access. And the more people doing it, the better. And it all goes into the whole we push back and bringing, bringing uh, exposure to these things. It all ties into one another. It's all about exposure. It's all about filling the public in on what goes on in reality not what's written in textbooks and that it's all one big one big uh process where you try to incorporate as many pieces as possible to gain as much exposure as possible that's really what it's all about and then we just close it out uh, according for all the reasons set forth above and all papers here <clears throat> heretofore filed herein it is respectively submitted that the court should grant defendants Rule 33 motion for a new trial and or on the alternative, order the government to produce discovery and disclose Brady material and or order an evidentiary hearing. So we're given different options to the judge in our conclusions. And again, just lists all the, uh, uh, the defendants and their counsel. So that's really it for today. I wanted to just give an update on that. So now where it stands, uh, this case is in the court's hands. The judge has to decide. Uh, is there going to be an evidentiary hearing? Is there going to be a ruling? We'll see how it plays out. But it's in the court's hands. The appeal is told at this time. It's paused, waiting for this result, and then we go from there. If this don't work out, we go for the appeal. And uh, I think that's all I got for today. I wish everybody well. Again, for the supporters of We Push Back, for the supporters of the channel, supporters of what I'm doing, thank you. I can't thank you all enough. For the members of We Push Back, keep doing your thing. Uh, little by little, we'll start making a difference. And we just got to, my only advice, don't, don't get bogged down with the nonsense, with the constant BS from other content creators. Just focus on what we got to focus on. And uh, obviously, unless they force our hand, that's different. In certain respects, I'm starting to feel my hands being forced. And uh, one day I may wake up and just feel I have to address it. That's just how I am. I may just wake up one day and say, that's it. I got to address it. So we'll see how all that plays out. You know, the Bulls in their court, if they want to keep going, they keep going. It's, you know, that's, I could go either way. I could go the easy way, the hard way. It doesn't matter to me. I'm, I'm, I'm game for however it wants to be played. 
I just like to sit back a little and see how people want to, uh, how far people want to push things. So we'll see how that plays out. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate you taking the time to listen. Till next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justicetechpros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off